This audio file is a production of Chiasmos, the University of Chicago's international and area studies multimedia outreach source. For related audio and video, or for more information about the project, please visit chiasmos.uchicago.edu or internationalstudies.uchicago.edu. I said this the other day, and somebody with a little more sympathy to the church than I apparently had exhibited said, the church, like many, is just afraid of change. And uh, it's hard sometimes to know how to deal with change. They've been around for 2,000 years. It took them 350 years to apologize for condemning Galileo. <laughs> so, and it was obvious yeah. that Galileo was right. And so it's just hard for them to deal with change. But that's why I stay in the church and why I try to convince people to become, uh, you know, to come stay in the Catholic Church because they need voices. I mean, just to say, you know, there's another way. For instance, the, the church just changed its position on limbo. So they can change. Yeah. Yeah. Make no sudden moves, though, is what you're saying. No, um, they don't make sudden moves, and there's a value to that. I mean, with, there's... With, uh, they've got problems, but there, there is some value. <laughs> well, one of the things that I found very uh, um, illuminating and helpful in the book is the chapter on Protestantism. And <laughs> it's always good, um, really, to, to see yourself as, as uh, another group sees you. So it was Kathleen's view of, of, of us as Protestants was, was very interesting to me. And um, you have a lot of good things to say about the pilgrims. <laughs> And I pointed out to Kathleen that we in the United Church of Christ, we are what happened to the pilgrims, which she said she didn't know. No. And, uh, and you can see what can happen to pilgrims. Uh, pretty soon they are marrying lesbian and gay folk because they're progressive. And, um, and, and we are in the United Church of Christ, we are the pilgrims without the hats. That's who we are today. And um, you make the point, and I think it is a very well-made point, that a lot of Protestant progressives forget all of the sources of their progressivism, and they just remember the civil rights movement, um, which, and you say, that is not the only source of Protestant progressivism, that there are other sources. And I want to read a passage from the book um, where you say what those other things are. And then what I'd like to ask you is, if you think that these three points, which I thought were extremely well-crafted, might form the basis for some kind of more universal plan for the relationship of faith and public life. So I'm going to go, and for those of you who buy the book, um, I highly recommend page 93. So <laughs> let me just read that. Um, now, you say that the civil rights movement was, was not the beginning of the progressive Protestant tradition, though it did represent some flowering of very core ideas, and you name three. So I want to read that section. What are these three ideas? I believe there are three specific Protestant beliefs that have driven progressive and reform-minded causes throughout American history. First, the legitimacy of protest created the conditions necessary for revolution, all the while establishing an example for future reform movements. Second, the spiritual equality of all individuals created a model for political equality. 
and set in motion the series of rights movements that continue to expand the circle of freedom in America. Third and finally, the notion that as the creation of God, we have the potential to perfect ourselves and the society in which we live. And this has been essential to driving people towards greater justice. Now, I think that is true of us as Protestants, but I think this yearns towards the universal. And I wondered what you thought of that. Well, I hope it yearns towards the universal. Um, certainly, protest is very much um, part of Protestantism, but, uh, you know, the Pope is always critiquing um, state government, you know, gov nation, national governments uh, for what it's doing. It's criticized the United States government, for instance, for the war in Iraq. Uh, it's criticized the countries of the, um, mm -hmm. the more developed cu countries uh, for what they've done to the undeveloped uh, war part of the world. So I think protest is a very valid, valid part of the, America, uh, the world universal experience. And 20 years ago, I started something called the Robert Kennedy Human Rights Award, and I've seen people of faith all over the globe stand up in protest. And, and I think it's a particularly important part of faith because if you're part of a community of faith, when you protest, you realize there are others that are with you who will have your back, who will mm. support you. Um, which is often difficult when you're going to protest. And so you want people of faith to be with you. And I think that's, number one, totally very important. To the equality, obviously, if we, we believe, which is part of our, our faith, that we're all children of God, then uh, it means that we're all created equal. And I think that, you know, obviously, Thomas Jefferson, when he said all men are created equal, he wasn't right about that. <laughs> he forgot woman, women, which I think, you know, you always have to correct your founding fathers. They're not to show that they're not always right. But the, but the equality of all of is is critically important. And I think that's, um, you know, also the idea that the, the God it lies within each soul is so mm -hmm. important. And I, I think you're right about that. And obviously, the third that we can always improve. That We all see that as part of the American ideal, where there's so much self-help, self-improvement, we're gonna get better. You know, The whole idea of the city on the hill is we're gonna mm -hmm. be a shining light for all the world to see. And I think that's a very exciting idea. It's not universally accepted. As you know, in the Catholic Church, there, we go through periods where, uh, you know, we're supposed to, re, you know, the, where there's more of a retreat from the world, and then there are other periods where we want to be engaged in the world. And I think that's true with the Protestant tradition as well, um, and probably other traditions. But I, I believe deeply that there's a universal character that we want to get better, and we can unleash it, and, and I hope we should. And I, I think that if we can focus on those three, three areas, um, the and that the equality comes out of a spiritual sense of our, of our souls, um, it's very important to do, and it's a way to talk to others. One of the strong themes of the book is that you are very critical of conservatives in both religion and politics for their failures on economic justice, and that they are not reflective of the teaching of the prophets and of Jesus. And then you quote the conservative columnist, Cal Thomas, uh, whom I will therefore also quote, because this is a whale of a quote. Um, Cal Thomas writes, there is no biblical expectation 
that a fallen world can or should or will be improved prior to the return of the one to whom evangelicals are supposed to owe their complete allegiance. Close quote. So Tom, Cal Thomas's doctrine of the fall here is saying that there's nothing we can do to make the world any better. And it, to me, and I think to you, this is so complete. I mean, you know, what Bible are you reading? Um, but what do you say to people who challenge you um, and who, um, from this conservative economic perspective and who are so blinded to the economic message of the Gospels and, and to the Hebrew You know, it's a very good Bible. question what you say. Um, my experience is that talking is not always the best way to teach, hmm. uh, very frankly. That really seeing and experiencing is a better way to open people's eyes. Uh, and I, and I, I, I also tell the story in, in the book about my conversation with Rick Warren, yes, which maybe would be worthwhile yeah. Yeah, um, sharing with yeah. you today. Uh, Rick Warren, as some of you know, um, wrote a book called The Purpose Driven Life. It sold 25 million copies. Um, I went to see him, uh, which was probably an occasion of sin, <laughs> because I lusted after the fact that he could sell 25 million copies. <laughs> Clearly, I wanted to do the same. <laughs> um, but I read his book. I don't know if anybody in the audience has read the book. Uh, Purpose Driven Life, but it, it's it's a compelling book. It talks about how God loves you and God cares about you, and that if you go through this period of 40 days, you will find peace. Um, and I said, well, that's, you know, I read the book, and there was no mention of the poor and the sick, um, the disenfranchised, the immigrant. Uh, there was no mention of the hungry or the homeless, and yet you say that this is God's word, you missed a lot. <laughs> I didn't quite use that tone of voice. <laughs> Good thinking. <laughs> and of course, he said, and of course, I'm telling you because he said, "You're right. Um, you're right, Kathleen." Uh, he had figured this out before I told him. He had been pointed out a little, and I'll tell you how he found out. And he said, "I have to repent." And he is now getting doing a lot um, in Africa and, and in Saddleback. But he said two things, which are, he said, "I missed it all." And why did he miss it, is the question. Mm -hmm. And how did he see, how did he come to see what's going on? He came to see what's going on because his wife, the minister's wife, was reading Time magazine, and she saw children with AIDS from Africa. And she looked at these pictures, and she couldn't understand them because her theology had been that anybody who had AIDS was sinful, mm -hmm. was deserved the pain and suffering they got because they had sinned. And she looked at these children and she said, but they haven't sinned. And she told the story of how she kept looking at the picture and then putting it away because she didn't want to look at it. She couldn't, it couldn't, it didn't fit her theology. And finally she said, she rolled on the floor. She was so upset, and she said, God is trying to tell me something. My theology is wrong. And she got interested in AIDS. And for a number of years, 
Her husband, the great Wick War Rick Warren, he tells the story. I love the guy because he's so honest about his own past. Says, that is for you. You are not allowed to bring your passion into my church. You can't talk about AIDS in my church. And she finally got to him. <laughs> <laughs> but in other words, she, it took a while. It wasn't just an argument. It was seen. It was understanding. And he then described how he did two things. He said, look at Kathleen, if you're in Saddleback, California, there are not a lot of poor people. So it, I didn't see anything that was not part of my experience. And then he talked about his religious tradition, which is what you're referring to, that 120 years ago, the Protestant church split between the evangelicals who got more interested in personal relationship to Jesus on one hand, and the mainline Protestant churches, your church, who got more interested in social justice, and they split. So he told about how he had read the Bible for 25 years and had never seen the 2,100 passages that called us to care for the poor and the justice. Just didn't see it. So it says to me that it's not just an argument that opens mm -hmm. your heart. Clearly, those arguments had been around, but it took his wife, and it took the pictures, and then he went to Africa, and it opened him up. And so when you ask, how do I approach it, I, I, you know, when I was, uh, before I was lieutenant governor, I spent eight years getting kids involved in making Maryland the first state in the country, still the only state, to require them to do community service, because I don't believe that an argument alone can open you mm -hmm. up. You have to experience. I think it's experience, which is kind of an anti-intellectual thing to say at a university, so I apologize. <laughs> um, but my, my thought is, I'll tell you one other story that might be relevant to it. I took, when I, I went to Harvard as a freshman, I took a course with Eric Erickson. And he would only allow people in his course who had done some community service. Because really? he said, that's the only way he can teach. They have to have done something. The, he, it, it can't be just intellectual. That's is right. that a helpful? Yeah, it's very helpful, very helpful. So I think part of the challenge is how do we open people's hearts? We do it with movies or pictures or stories, taking people. It can't, it's hard just to do it intellectually. One of the passages and I told you this, that truly shocked me in this book uh, was about contraception. And um, I, I think not only do you critique um, the Catholic Church's failing women on, on sexuality issues, but you pretty much have a constructive argument as well. But I did not know about this. So I'm going to read this and, um, and invite you to, to summarize for the group. And there may be questions then about, about um, birth control and also uh, abortion. This is on page 139. For a time, it appeared as though the church might change its position on contraception. In 1962, Cardinal Montini, the future Pope Paul VI, put together the Papal Birth Control Commission to make recommendations on whether or not the church should change its position on birth control and what effect that might have on papal authority. 
The commission included 64 lay people and 15 clerics, including a Polish archbishop, who in fact would become Pope John Paul II. After a four-year process, the committee decided that while declaring birth control permissible would in the short term undermine church authority, the Vatican should do so nonetheless because it was simply the right thing to do. According to newspaper reports at the time, the lay people on the commission voted 60 to 4 for change, and the clerics voted 9 to 6. But the Catholic Church, as you point out, is not a democracy, and uh, nevertheless, uh, um, the report said if it should be declared that contraception is not an evil in itself, then we should have to concede, frankly, that the Holy Spirit had been on the side of the Protestant churches. <laughs> it should likewise have to be admitted that for half a century, the Spirit failed to protect Pius XI and Pius XII and a large part of the Catholic hierarchy from a serious error. <laughs> and so, indeed, this decision was made not on the merits uh, of, a, of, of a theological argument vis-a-vis -vis, uh, contraception, but in fact on papal authority. Mm -hmm. And so I, I know that this is something about which you feel extremely strongly. So I, I wanted to give you an opportunity, because uh, I mean, as we discussed, ironically enough, what they feared, namely the undermining of the church's yeah. authority, has in fact happened. It's because true. Catholics use contraception as much in the United States as Protestants do. Yes. Well. It, it, it actually is ironic because it did under, the decision absolutely undermined uh, papal authority. Ninety per, ninety percent of American Catholics uh, practice uh, birth control, um, and it just shows that it's actually, you know, I think will will lead. I hope to the democratization of the of the church in a sense because over and over again. The church makes, if it makes it a pronouncement, we've now had the habit for mm -hmm. 40 years of not paying attention to the hierarchy. Um, many priests don't believe it as well. And, and so once you get into the habit of di disobeying them on one thing, you start to uh, not paying attention on others. And it's really created a much more vibrant, vibrant uh, situation among Catholics, not among the hierarchy itself, but among Catholics to think, we have to, uh, we have to think for ourselves in mm -hmm. a way that was very much antithetical to what they've ever done. So, you know, I think they made, in one sense, an enormous mistake. But on the other hand, it's helped the flowering of a much richer kind of church. Yeah. If you think of the role I thought of the that laity. Was very, very. And it's interesting. interesting. The real Pope Pius the Sixth, I think, would have allowed the change in um, birth control, but it was. The Polish Pope, who eventually, the Polish Archbishop, who eventually became Pope John the Twenty, uh, Pope John Trump Paul II, second. who was the major impetus not to change it. And I think, you know, Pope John Paul II is a great hero to many, um, but I think he has really been a very uh, detrimental to the role of women. Um, in the church, and because of it, the church is so large and has such a big moral voice to the role of women in the world. Yeah. And I say that, uh, which is uh, very unfortunate, because he's done a number of good, he did a lot of good things on communism, but I have to say, I think communism would have fallen of its own weight, and the real challenge is 
how women are treated. And he was on the wrong side of history on that one. Finally, I did find one thing uh, with which to disagree with you. Um, and that is the section where you say that uh, uh, secular uh, folk on the left and um, religious folk on the left got a divorce post the civil rights period. And I ch would like to challenge you on that because I don't think that's what happened. What I think happened is that uh, the folk on the religious left just started talking the language of secularism when they were in the public square. That they, they didn't so much get a divorce as they did become lazy. They did not do the theological and moral reasoning to be able to make a religious case for why they were defending, let's say, the common good, why they might defend economic justice. And I, I mentioned to you earlier today that we met a lot of people at Chicago Theological Seminary, particularly in our Doctor of Ministry program, who are dissidents from the Catholic Church, from uh, the Protestant churches. Uh, um, we have a Jewish Christian program. We get uh, people who are uh, um, of, of many faiths who are strongly protesting against the very things you're protesting, but they don't do it in the language of faith. They right. do it in the language of secularism. So I was inviting you to reflect on that because I think it's not a divorce, I think as much as it is flabbiness on the part of the religious left. Well, I know you'd think that. <laughs> I, I think there are two, I really do, I think you raise a very, very good point. I do think that there are a number of people in the religious left who are strongly religious and involved in the public square. I think um, you quoted earlier the Catholic uh, Church's doctrines on war and the economy, and that was very much based on theology and quite eloquent and quite good. Mm -hmm. um, I think that there's people such as Jim Wallace and Sojourners Magazine who clearly make the connection between their faith and, pub and public life. Um, but I do believe that there, it has been hard, and I told you this when I wrote this book, to find a lot of writings, at least when I started this book, about faith and public life in, in the common uh, language. And I do think it's because people have become, a, the left, the religious left, although religious, they became afraid of of articulating how they feel, and they don't, uh, um, and they don't have the language for how to use it in the 21st century, which is really why I wrote this book. Um, I believe very much that it's important to have a. I have a. I'm religious. I'm a believer. I go to church. You know, I want my children to go to church, and I, I want, and what I do in public life very much comes out of my faith. Um, uh, and I can go in over and over if you want, you know, what I've done and how, why I think that really comes out of, of Catholic social teachings. So much of it does. And I wanted others to feel that I wanted this, help, this book to help liberate uh, people of faith on the left to articulate loudly and clearly what's going on um, and what should go on in our country. And I, I agree that that's one of the challenges that mm -hmm. we face as to how, how to make that happen. Um, and this comes, I think, really from the civil rights movement uh, when there really was a split uh, even 40 years ago between those followers of Martin Luther King and those who criticized Martin Luther King for being too Christian to turning the other cheek to being too soft 
and wanted to be followers of the Black Power movement. They were tough. They violence stood up. And there are very many members of the um, liberal uh, secular left, I would say, who followed uh, the the more, you know, the Black Panthers criticized Martin Luther King. We don't remember that now because Martin Luther King is the hero, but that wasn't the case 40 mm -hmm. years ago. Now, is there anything that you would like this audience to know about this book before we open it up for questions? I think, uh, I, I, I really did, what, what you did, which is different than most people who ask me about this book, many people talk about how I really talked so much about my own family, and I guess, because I have so many eighth graders here, I'm gonna tell you a story, um, okay? When my, um, when I was your age, or a year younger, when I was in 12th grade, when I was 12 years old, and my, I was in seventh grade, because I know you're all in eighth grade, my uncle, who was then president of the United States, was killed. And my father was the attorney general. And, um, Three days after he was killed, my father uh, wrote me a letter, and I'm going to tell you about the letter he wrote me. And this was a very tough time because my father worked very hard for my uncle. He loved him very much, and it was devastating, as it could be, to have him, him die. Um, it meant he didn't know what his future would be. He didn't know... Uh, what his relationship to, to Lyndon Johnson would be, which was very bad, as some of you know. Um, he didn't know how uh, Jackie would be treated. He didn't know what the view, what would happen to all that he worked for as part of the Kennedy administration. And he didn't know, uh, and, and there was a lot of people around that day, because it was the day of the funeral, that he had to pay attention to, because there were world leaders from all over the globe. But he took time out to write me a letter, and I'm going to recite to you the letter, and it's in the book. He said, Dear Kathleen, I think you understood that Jack died and was buried today. As the oldest of the Kennedy grandchildren, you have a special responsibility, a responsibility to, to my cousin John and to my brother Joe. Be kind to others and work for your country. Love, Daddy. And I thought, when I think about it now, when people, he wasn't bitter, and he wasn't angry, and he wasn't full of revenge. He was talking about being responsible, and being kind, and being, and working for the greater good, going forward. And I thought what a wonderful sense of faith that was. And I hoped that what he taught me about how you go forward when there is tragedy uh, was a beautiful, beautiful notion. And that, I think, is faith at the best. So if you ask me what I'd like to share, it was that story, because it's about when I was your age. Well, I'm sure all of you would like to uh, um, engage Kathleen at this point. We have a mic right there. So those of you who have a question, please avail yourself of it. And uh, we have really plenty of time. Can you hear me? Sure. Uh, sorry. <laughs> okay, to start off with, um, well, even before you told the story or the letter and everything, I could see your father t kind of talking through you because I remember seeing the uh, Time Life photograph of 
him and all the children at the house of Hickory Hills or yeah. um, kneeling down praying with the rosary. And over the years, past few years, I got to meet Rory, who spoke about AIDS, and I got to meet Robert Jr. that spoke, you know, uh, about the environment, and Christopher and his wife, who does great things for Chicago and everything. And they're so good to everybody that come across them, and and they, they're so sincere, and they're so soft-spoken for what they believe and what they want to accomplish. And I feel like maybe your father's values rubbed off on them and yourself. And I just want to know what your father would think today about the Catholic Church and what's going on and what would his political influence and his personal influence would do today. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I think he, he would... Um I think he would be very disappointed with the Catholic Church. I mean, he actually, I was in Rome two years ago um, and talked to a cardinal who told me that my father went, went to Rome at one point and was trying to get the Pope to pay more attention to the issues of the third world. Um, and even when the, the church was doing better at that time, he was still saying, you can do much more. And um, he was always, as he would always, be pushing people to do better. And I think that the church has, uh, is not doing as well as it can. I mean, I think it's very, very sad about our church. There are, and by the church, I mean the hierarchy, because I think there are wonderful uh, priests and nuns and laity all over uh, the world who are do doing great, fabulous work. But the headlines are going to... I think the bishops who are not doing such good work um, are just condemning women, uh, as I said, number one. And number two, um, I mean, I think he would have been horrified by the pederasty scandal and the, the, the fact that they seem to be more interested in protecting themselves than protecting the people and the pews and the children. So it's easy to say that, to criticize the church, and I think he would have said that. But, you know, what what's, I loved about and what I think people lo respected about my father, he wasn't just into con complaining, he was into what can we do about it. And there are a number of organizations um, that are really are in the part of the Catholic Church who are trying to reform the church with, from within. Hi, I How hope you, you sell millions of copies. <laughs> I'm um, from California, and speaking of family, <laughs> I'm just wondering if any one of those copies has ended up in our governor's hands or if you have any kind of dialogue going yes, on. Yes. There are glimmers of hope for yes, those of actually, us on the left. Um, well, uh, the governor has actually had the wisdom to marry my cousin. Yeah, that's what we <laughs> love. <laughs> and I, um, I spoke his... They have a parish church in Santa Monica, California, and actually the, the Monsignor there had me come and speak to about 40 members of the parish, including people from the who work for the archdiocese. And we had a very, first of all, we got, we got a book to Maria and, and to uh, her husband. And <laughs> we had a very lively discussion that evening. Um, so we're making absolute inroads. I think he's doing a good job on a number of these issues, yeah, to tell you yeah. the truth. So it's- Well, thanks. Well, God bless them all. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Yeah. First, I want to thank you. I loved everything you said. And I want to say that as a Protestant, I'm as dismayed by the Protestant church as you are by the Roman Catholic. We are, I'm Episcopalian, a church which is torn by uh, nearly uh, imminent schism, 
over issues uh, that ought to take a back seat to larger issues. Um, people who are incredibly dismayed about a minute number of people on the planet at the cost of concern for a, a wider uh, number of people. So that uh, I first became extremely uh, distressed during the last election by the Protestant church because all of the afflictions that you see in the Catholic church, I see in the Protestant church, that many Protestant churches uh, voted uh, for the present administration around issues of gay marriage, around issues of abortion, around issues of stem cell research, exactly the same issues that you note in the Catholic Church. And where many Protestant churches, tragically to me, were bought off by the promise, the vague promise of money for faith-based initiatives. Mm -hmm. So it seems to me that, um, you know, I've been on the board of seminaries where the curriculum is undergoing radical change and people talk about getting degrees in things called spirituality right. um, rather than curriculum and social justice. So I, my, I, I love everything I heard about your book. I felt like the lady over there said, I hope you sell millions. <laughs> uh, it should be read by half as many people as Rick Warren's are reading Rick Warren's book. But I do think that uh, for those of us who are active in the Protestant world, we need to make those same concerns on the front burner. So I'm going to buy the book. And I hope as you go around the country talking about it, that you open that that whole set of concerns to the Protestant church in this country. Thanks. Thank you. Well said. Does that, do you want to ask a question? Okay, why don't you come up first and then mm -hmm. thank you. Um, do you get any uh, negative responses from people because of this book? Oh, yes. <laughs> yes, actually, um, I'm so sorry to say this about my own Church, but when my, my publisher sent um, the book to the Catholic press, they got a letter back saying uh, we couldn't possibly take an ad, allow ads to run because we're here to promote piety, uh, not thinking. Um, and uh, she's probably a, she's a very bitter woman, referring to me, who probably doesn't go to church. <laughs> so that was interesting. Yeah, so they didn't like it very much. Um, a number of people have said they've tried to put my book into Catholic um, libraries and the library wouldn't take it. But others, I have to say, have been terrific. I mean, I've got a letter from the Cardinal of Boston who said it's important to engage in dialogue. It made me very happy. I've gotten lots of letters from priests and, and from um, nuns who have said this has been very helpful. So that's been one issue. And then um, some of the far Christian right have made the criticism that uh, this is just about communism and uh, <laughs> that horse won't die yeah it's so odd that that you know communism is sort of dead around the world mm -hmm. it's sort of the one word they can say it's um, so that's that's been a criticism but thank you for asking <laughs> Yes, 
Thank you for coming. Um, I remember the year that I was 10. I had brothers who could play little league ball and could be altar boys, yeah. and of course I could do neither. And I felt a great sense of injustice as a little girl. And I had my chance when the visiting Monsignor came to our school, and I asked him, Monsignor, do boys and girls have a different soul? And of course he said, oh no, my child, we are all equal in the eyes of God. And of course I followed up, then why can't girls be altar girls? Mm. Which yeah. um, he exploded, and of course, uh, for me challenging Holy Mother Church, and there was you. a trip to the principal's office involved. And, <laughs> um, but it, it struck me that I was on to something at that age. And I wondered ever since then in looking at the hierarchies that our beliefs get translated through, how we get to this sense of God's equality, that God's eyes do see us as equal. And this is where Catholic social justice takes its notion that we are all equal in the eyes of God. And I wondered how do we as Americans who have this sort of rugged sense of individuality that has pushed us from sea to shining sea, how do we reconcile that with this notion of God's equality? How do we get to that in order to do the things we need to do to look after those who are less fortunate than we may be? Thank you. That's a very beautiful question. Um, actually, I think Susan, would you like to answer that question? That's what that would that would that's what we were talking about earlier. And then I'll, I'll. yeah, ex uh, um, you know, I think you are naming a problem, but you're also naming the hope. Um, human beings are not God; we are finite, but we have been created in the image of God, so. I draw hope for reform. I draw hope for revolution from the fact that oppressed people for women, African Americans, the, the, the third world, gay people say, I'm in the image of God and you can't do that to me. And so I find this the most hopeful thing is that people take that and say, there is a higher law there is a, a, a command for community. And that's, you know, I bet somebody taught you that you were in the image of God. And that has been an enlivening part of your life. It is for me. And so, I mean, I, I find this the best thing, truly. I, th I think that's right. I, I also believe um, that the church lives in a, you know, the church has lasted for two thousand. The Catholic Church now I'm talking about has lasted for two thousand years because it's politically astute, and um, so to the extent that you can build intellectual pressure as well as political pressure about what they're doing to women, the better off we are. Uh, for instance, Pope John uh, Paul II wrote a number of a, sort of new encyclicals trying to deal with the issue of women. He first apologized. Well, they had never, you know, it's very hard for the Catholic Church to apologize. I mean, the, human, the story of Humana mm -hmm. Vitae is a right, right one. They, they didn't want to prove that they were ever admit that they were wrong. So they had to admit at one point they're wrong. Two, um, he had to say there's, there's a role for women. Now, he, the role turned out to be mothers and virgins. So it wasn't, <laughs> there weren't a lot of choices, but at least they were, tr you know, trying to deal with it. I think to the extent that schools of theology um, are teaching a much more open feminist 
theology than happened before. I mean, there, un, it's really been underscored that, at least in my understanding, that Christ was the first feminist. Um, who, 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 who did he? Who did he reveal himself to? Mary Magdalene, a woman. Who was called the apostle to the apostles? A woman. Uh, who stayed with him at the bottom of the cross? Women. So who were the most faithful of all the people he was with? Women. Now, you're in, you're in Rome at the, 2,000 years ago. You probably couldn't make women absolute leaders because that would have been difficult for that culture. But he did, you could make the argument, he did everything he could to say that when the 20th century came around, you should be prepared. It is women's time. So in other words, it helps us to understand um, our theology and our history to make the arguments. And uh, I think that's what's going on right here at the School of Theology. Hi, um, I'm a PhD candidate in theology at the University of Chicago. Um, and I have had the opportunity to teach as an adjunct at various Catholic universities um, around the Chicago area. I've usually taught introduction to Christian theology, Christology, and that sort of thing. The problem I found is that I, most of my students, majority of them, are not all Catholics, but they are Christians who think that their faith is important in their life. Um, and this goes often to this statistic that gets sort of put around that a vast majority of Americans believe in God. Problem I found is that there is a jaw-dropping ignorance <laughs> among students coming in at, from 18 to 25 about their own faith. They don't know the basic vocabulary. They don't know the, the texts. They certainly don't know the doctrines. They can recite the creeds, but if asked in any way what they mean, they have absolutely no idea. So the problem that I have, and, and I'm absolutely in for progressive uh, um, political agenda, and I'm sort of speaking about people who are, say, 35 and under, that with our generation, there is a kind of ignorance. And the problem might be is that how can you sort of appeal to a prophetic tradition when the students you don't even know what prophets are? <laughs> and whether <laughs> that you, you can the degree to which there would need to be some kind of educational change before that vocabulary becomes meaningful again. Because I think that there's two things. One is that there was this, among the secular left, sort of a discomfort with religious language. My mother is a ex-hippie atheist who cringes when anybody mentions anything about Christianity, which is kind of ironic since her daughter's a theologian. Um, <laughs> So you have them, but you also have people who are Christians who don't really have the background to make any of those kind of connections. And I read your book, and you actually sort of mentioned that, that um, part of the problem with the churches is they hadn't really articulated the theological connection That's right. to these mm -hmm. issues. And what, what is the next step if we want to sort of create some sort of right. theological connection to these issues? Great question. Um, I think there are a number of steps. Um, one, uh, the progressive churches should, should do theology. Um, they can do Bible study, but you know, we come from, the Catholic Church comes from a tradition where Bible is one part of our, where we learn, but we're supposed to learn from reason, from Thomas Aquinas, from theologians. So I'm, I'm hesitant to say it's only Bible study, because I think that's much more of a Protestant tradition than a Catholic tradition, um, uh, as you well know. 
But one is to, to understand theology, to understand uh, Two, um, I think that people such as myself uh, have a role to amplify what goes on in these schools, which is tr what I try to do in this book. I mean, I'm not a theologian, but I can read what other people wrote, so I try to make it popular and easy to understand. Um, and third, I think there is a discussion now, uh, I think Stephen Prothero, I think it's written yes. a book that says, should we be teaching the Bible or should we be teaching religion in public schools? And I think it's a very, it's. I think it's a really good discussion. I think it's easier to do in some public schools than others. It's probably easier to do in those schools in which religion is not as important. I think it's tougher to do in schools where religion is really important because the discussion revolves around people's most deeply held beliefs. But I think it's valuable, and I think that there's more shows on television now that allow for discussion. I think it's, you know, I, th I think there is this religious revival going, so we will, start to understand our past a little better. I hope. It's interesting Do to me. Do we have another question? Yeah. Do you have another question? Oh, okay. Good for you. All right. Come on, gang. Those middle school kids. Yeah. Good for you. Carry the day. Um, uh, did you lose a little confidence in the Catholic Church um, uh, after your uncle and your dad died? Oh, that's a very good question. Um, actually, what I say the question is, did I lose confidence in the Catholic Church, or, or I'm sure you, after my uncle and my father died. To tell you the truth, I think um, it helped build more confidence in the church because uh, the church and the rituals of the church gave all of us in our family something to do together. We, we would pray together, we would say the rosary together, we would go to wakes together, and I found that um, all my brothers and sisters go to are churchgoers, and most people our age aren't as much as this one family. And why is that the case? Because when you've been struck by tragedy after tragedy and challenge after challenge, a faith in God and a faith in the and a and the rituals were a great sense of source of comfort. So, um, and that's what I found: the people who are in war or people who are in tragic situations find faith more easily than those who have just lived lives that are much easier. Let me say in conclusion, I found it very interesting that you remarked that I did not focus on your family. Yes. And I've been thinking about that since I've been sitting here. And I'm a great admirer of both your father and your uncle. But I know you. <laughs> Thank you. And I heard your voice on every page. And I think they certainly taught you, but this book is you, Thank you. and it's great. So let's get a start on those 25 million copies because there are books for sale out there and Kathleen will be there to sign your book and there's a little refreshments and let's just build the sales. Thank you very much. Thank you.